0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 27th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We get the latest on the continuing sexual misconduct trial of former Chief of Defence Jonathan Vance, including the bombshell testimony this week from Major Kelly Brennan. Next, we look at the provincial government's announcement of the easing of restrictions when it comes to visiting long-term care facilities. We get the details from Sarah Offen, Global Calgary Reporter. Continuing our discussion surrounding long-term care centers, we hear details on a new study out of the University of Waterloo that suggests smaller centers could be the key to mitigating future viral outbreaks. We discuss with a professor of public health. And finally, we get details on a new certification program for entrepreneur coaches. We speak with Calgary-based personal development and entrepreneur coach Doug Vermeeran.
1: 609 on your Tuesday morning and from bombshell testimony by Major Kelly Brennan in the sexual misconduct trial of former Chief of Defence Staff Jonathan Vance to a look at the vaccine rollout here in Canada and right across the globe. It was a busy one this weekend on the West Block and with details we're joined this morning by Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi Mercedes. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thank you for being with us as always, boy. A new week and more details coming out on the uh, sexual misconduct trial of the Chief of Defense Jonathan Vance. A testimony by Major Kelly Brennan. I guess were you surprised, or did you know a little bit about what was coming and and we'll talk about what was the biggest takeaway from that testimony in your view? Well, I'll say I didn't know
2: uh, that it was going to come out at uh, the the parliamentary hearings. I was certainly aware of the allegations, and we'd actually uh, asked General Vance about those allegations in February, at which time he denied paternity of the children. We're talking specifically.
1: Uh, we should say for folks who might not know that he fathered two of her kids.
2: Yeah, yeah. she told committee that um, that John Vance is the father of of two of their children, which obviously, um, if that is the case would be proof of the relationship that she claimed uh, and may, in fact, prove timelines around when she was under his direct command. Uh, he is denied having a relationship with her while she was under his direct command. He is denied being the father of the children. Uh, we're always very careful in Ottawa around anything that's a parliamentary committee. If you're a journalist, you never uh, want to be too involved. You, you you cannot get too close to those. You cover them, uh, but I... You know, did not know what she was going to say in advance. Um, I wouldn't say I was necessarily surprised by it, um, but the shock wave was was massive in Ottawa for sure. Yeah. Because, um, well, a lot of folks in the military might have heard rumors about that. It was the first time it had ever actually been put out there that directly in the public sphere. And uh, you could see the reaction on social media and, and just hear it around Parliament Hill.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the journalistic uh, process that, that you kind of referred to there, Mercedes, and that we can assume now that you knew about this, you know, maybe maybe weeks ago, maybe even longer. Um, there must be much more to the story that at, at this point um, isn't exactly your news to tell. So generally you'd think a reporter would let, every, let the cat out of the bag, but it, it's a very delicate and interesting situation, your job, isn't it? It's,
2: it's very delicate when you're talking about... Um I mean, as journalists, we have to be factual, we have to be neutral. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to be confident that we are we are able to prove everything that we are reporting. We also have to take into consideration uh, the possibility of harm that could be done, and we have to take into consideration uh, legal risk. And in, in this particular case, we actually wrote about it in the article, um, for folks who are wondering, well, why if you heard this allegation wasn't it published, it was because we determined there was a significant legal risk. Um, when Major Brennan testifies to the committee, she was able to share her story as her her story um, and that part of her story and you're also protected by parliamentary privilege when you testify which means you are immune. Um, So there is extensive protection there for her um, that there isn't in a way when somebody is speaking to you as a journalist. So it was uh, it was certainly something I'd I'd heard about it you know at the end of the day um, we will see what happens uh, but Yeah, I'm always very, very careful on uh, legal risk and what we are reporting and that we are being very careful to verify everything that we have in terms of there's usually more we've seen um, that doesn't necessarily make it into especially the two minutes of TV reporting. Yeah
1: and frankly when there are kids involved it makes it that much more delicate I'd imagine especially after he said he'd never even heard of them when their names were mentioned so uh, more to come on that for sure and you also talked on this topic to Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland and and asked her if she had any knowledge about these accusations and what what were her thoughts on this?
2: She said she had no knowledge of these allegations. She she didn't know about them in, in 2018, which, by the way, was a separate allegation than this one uh, that was brought forward to the defense minister. She was unaware of those allegations. Um, and then we sort of kind of asked her, do you think that you have confidence in Minister Sajjan for his handling of this? After last week we reported um, that the victim behind one of the emails uh, that was sent she had gone to the ombudsman, the military ombudsman, because she believed that he would go to the minister and the minister would have to do something. Uh, as we know, the minister didn't accept that envelope. He said that he believes he proceeded along the right path. Others have criticized him for that and said mm-hmm. that he should have been more directly involved and at least looked at the evidence. Um, and, you know, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland said that she, she supports the Prime Minister, she supports the Defence Minister, she supports the Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, who, for those who haven't been you know, watching the central microscope, we found out that the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff didn't know in 2018 there was an allegation, didn't know the nature of it, uh, and that actually contradicted some of the Defence Minister's previous testimony. So now the Defence Committee is saying that they would like to hear from the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Uh, I think that's highly unlikely to happen. Senior staff members usually do not appear in front of committees. Ministers do. But uh, that would be sort of the next step that we're expecting here in Ottawa after what we heard on Friday. Uh, But Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland also said she wanted to apologize to any woman who had experienced sexual misconduct or sexual assault while she was serving her country, uh, wearing the uniform. I keep hearing there's something coming very soon, within the next week or two approximately. There's going to be an announcement about what the Liberals are planning to do on this, Um, and it will involve everything from a civilian watchdog, although we don't know if it will report to Parliament, to a senior position being created in the military to deal with sexual misconduct, and um, perhaps also that probe that we've been hearing about uh, looking into General Vance's behavior and others that they have been promising us now for almost three months. Wow,
0: incredible. Not over yet for sure. You also had the chance to speak with Dr. Peter Singer, a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization, about vaccine equity and when it comes to the rollout. What did Dr. Singer have to say about the distribution of the vaccine globally and, and Canada's role in, in helping those uh, you know, uh, nations that have a little less?
2: Yeah, his biggest message was that until COVID is under control everywhere, it's under control nowhere. Um, so as long as you have the kind of uh, just horrific outbreaks that we're seeing in India and in Brazil, it inevitably, we're in a globalized culture, we will continue to travel around the world. So he's really pushing to make sure that those countries that are not as fortunate as Canada have access to the vaccine. One, it's a moral imperative in his view. And two, just at the end of the day, it will keep coming back to Canada and other countries as long as it's flourishing. So he would really like to see Canada and others step up to the plate to make sure that those countries are getting vaccines, that they are able to vaccinate their populations uh, in countries that, that don't have the kind of advantages that we do here. Um, you know, we can do a lot of social distancing and stuff in Canada. That's hard if you're in a favela in Brazil. Yeah. Um, so th- that was really his message is that everyone needs to focus on making sure that the vaccine does, in fact, go everywhere and not just essentially end up concentrated in G7 countries
1: well thank you for your time mercedes you be safe out there and do you, thank you, you, you don't have your vaccine yet do you
2: i don't i don't i'm so excited to get it but um age wise i haven't qualified yet you're so. just
1: much younger andy and i <laughs> both have our first shot so we're good to go well, i'm looking forward to it soon thank you so much for joining us have a great day mercedes thank you thanks that's mercedes stevenson global news ottawa bureau chief and host of the west block
0: 709 it's mornings with sue and andy big news from the province yesterday for family members of residents living in long-term care facilities and a chance for younger albertans with underlying health conditions to get the jab with the latest we are joined by global calgary reporter sarah Offen. good morning to you sarah
3: good morning andrew
0: well let's discuss this easing of restrictions at long-term care facilities Uh, what are the new guidelines that have been issued
3: yeah, so essentially uh, Premier Jason Kenney is saying that there's been more than 90% decline in the number of active cases in continuing care homes, uh, thanks to vaccinations. So beginning at May tenth, residents will be allowed to have uh, more visitors. So they can have up to four family members or support people instead of just two. And then for outdoor visits, it will now be limited to 10 instead of five.
1: I mean, good news for the seniors who've been so isolated through this and and with more than 80% of the vaccinated, you know, it makes sense. But I I guess there's probably still a little bit of worry, but people must be just so happy they can get in to see their, their loved ones, whether it be parents, grandparents, or whatever.
3: Yeah, I think it will come to as a big relief to a lot of people and, of course, we know that those groups were some of the first up for those vaccinations. So they're feeling more protected. It will be up to the discretion of the facilities in terms of whether or not they want to implement uh, those those recommendations from the province but legally they are now allowed to have more visitors so it will be some relief for them. At the same time, we're still hearing from infect- infectious disease specialists who are saying. Mm, is now the time. I mean, most of uh, people in those continuing care homes would have got the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, but, uh, you know, the, it's still only 90-some percent effective. Mm-hmm. So there is questions about the gaps there still when we're seeing some of the highest rates of infection that we've seen over the course of this pandemic.
0: It's interesting uh, to me, Sarah, because uh, one of the clarifications that you've uh, delivered to us was that May 10th date. That's over two weeks from now, isn't it? Is there any reason given that, that they're uh, pausing that for two weeks before people can get the opportunity to visit loved ones?
3: Yeah, that is a really good point. I, my guess would be that they're just giving those vaccines some time to really take mm. effect. And, of course, waiting uh, for people to get that second dose so that they have as much protection as possible. Uh, but they didn't, uh, they didn't sort of clarify specifically on that note.
1: And maybe with the numbers high as they are right now too, let that come down a little bit, hopefully. Now, also, Sarah, you're talking this morning about the fact that some of the younger generation we go from one extreme to the other for sure. But some of the younger um, people here in our city are soon going to be able to get the jab, too.
3: Yeah, so we're talking about uh, the most vulnerable populations, young and old. Um, some some good news for families that have been struggling. And so uh, young teens with underlying health conditions are going to be uh, now uh, able to, to get vaccinations. So beginning today, children aged 12 to 15 with underlying health conditions are eligible to book an appointment uh, That's for the Pfizer vaccine Um This is an interesting one because the lowered age limit is still being reviewed. It has not yet been approved by Health Canada, but it is in line with other jurisdictions. It follows recommendations from the National Advisory Committee on immunization. So it's probably some good news um, for those parents who've been very worried about their their teens. And I mean, it is It's hard for people in that age group to really follow all those health regulations, to keep their masks on, to keep distance from their peers. Um, That's a difficult go. And so this will provide some protection. I think the province is hoping it will provide some protection, specifically when um, those students are returning to classes Mm -hmm. again in the fall.
0: And let's talk about, you know, the fact is that the vaccine rollout very much continues, including announcements that they are going to up the numbers of vaccines and really focus on one of the most hard hit sites at the beginning of the pandemic, the meatpacking plants.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting that we're seeing this happen and sort of these pop up tents. Uh, structures that are happening, really localizing their efforts on that vaccine front. I mean, there's been a lot of questions about, you know, how all the vaccines are rolled out and who should get them first and that sort of thing. And really what the province is trying to do is to target uh, the areas where we're seeing the most spread, where we're seeing uh, people that are most vulnerable and certainly those meatpacking plants have been hard hit over the course of this pandemic.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us and great updates. I mean, good news for so many here in the city of Calgary with vaccinations coming their way. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Appreciate it. Yeah, we'll take it one day at a time. Thanks, Dave. Exactly. Sarah Offen, that is Global News Reporter, Sarah Offen.
0: And I think it's great for those families and those residents in LTC. Absolutely. Uh, So very important. There was
1: still some strict guidelines, right? It's not like it's going to be a free-for-all, so that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Still protecting them. And, of course, this is the population where we have seen the the largest numbers of vaccines rolled out at this point. But still, I wasn't too sure, particularly, uh, you know, when you hear there's an announcement and Jason Kenney and uh, Health Minister Tyler Shandro are going to be uh, present Uh, what we would be seeing and the numbers to me are why i'm I'm a little shocked we did not see some more restrictions in place again Mm -hmm. and i always have to say this caveat it's a shame i have to i don't want to you know we've never had a lockdown in the province I don't want businesses to hurt, but the fact is, with the numbers from yesterday, uh, 1495, 1,495 new COVID cases announced yesterday, 616 in hospital. That's the highest since January 23rd, 145 in ICU. That's the 10th highest to date and uh, seven-day uh, average hospitalizations, 558. It's a 10% positivity rate. Oh. 10% and we've been uh, there was a stretch where we did about 12 days of uh, 10% or, or bigger slipped below that I think in the past couple of days but uh, the numbers are high out there right now
1: so. and worrying for sure so this is good news that Canada's first Johnson and Johnson COVID-19 vaccines will arrive in our country this week about 300,000 J&J doses and um, We're also supposed to get 1 million more Pfizer shots and 650,000 Moderna doses. Now, that's Canada-wide, so that has to be spread out, but that means we will get some more here in Alberta. The AstraZeneca, I believe, we're not supposed to get any more in Alberta for... uh, an unknown time, but at this point, we're getting some other doses that are coming in. So that's good news, and hopefully we can get more people vaccinated. I know there are a lot of people, we've heard from them, a lot of people picking which vaccine they want, and they didn't want to go with the AZ. So with J&J coming in, that's good news, and the others as well. Hopefully more people will line up to get that shot.
0: I was kind of shocked because we heard news yesterday that they would be you know, sending and sharing some of their, over, well, their abundance of vaccine in the U.S., they have 60 million 60 million AstraZeneca uh, vaccines that they're looking to unload
1: well, it's and, uh, not approved there and they're not using no, them they're not using going to it. waste so thank goodness they're how, going to give them out. how
0: many will we see who knows but nevertheless, the more the merrier. And uh, apparently we're um, number three on the G20 list of nations as far as the uh, amount per population that have been vaccinated. Oh, okay. That's uh, good on the news. G20, yeah.
1: Oh, by the way, just a reminder, if you were one of the maskless protesters at the uh, rally uh, that was up in Medicine Hat, um, you might want to get tested because somebody at that rally has tested positive and they're urging everyone to do it despite somebody who was a part of that rally saying, yeah, don't bother going to get tested. You might want to look into that.
0: That's coming from me. A- H S right? 843 on mornings with Sue and Andy. A major overhaul is needed to help protect long-term care residents in the future. Those are the findings of a University of Waterloo report that looked into how COVID ripped through seniors' homes and how to best prevent it from happening again in the future. With details on the research, we're joined by George Heckman, professor in Waterloo's School of Public Health and Health Systems, as well as Schlegel Research Chair. Good morning to you, Professor.
4: Good morning. How are you?
0: Go ahead. Thank you for taking the time with us. So, George, uh, you pitched that we need to build smaller, more home-like spaces for long-term care facilities. How would this uh, help uh, any future problems?
4: It would. And uh, so, what we did is in the fall, we, we, I'm part of an international group of researchers, and we brought these people together uh, on a virtual town hall and to have a conversation about, you know, perspectives on long-term care and COVID from around the world we had five continents represented and there's a lot of things in common one of the questions we were interested in was the built environment uh, the facilities themselves and what the data that was shared and reviewed and more data since confirmed it is that you know viruses are very simple things to predict they're they're spread through air and so if you have a large building with lots of people coming in and out, you have a greater chance of the virus getting in. And once the virus is in, if you have a very crowded building with a lot of people, the chances of the outbreak being very severe are go- are very high. And, and what we've seen subsequently, and uh, more research published recently in the U.S., is that homes with 50 or fewer residents actually had a much, much lower mortality rate than the bigger homes. And really what we're talking about is rather than building massive facilities of two to 300 people, and some are even bigger, we start reducing the size of the living units to much smaller size so that there's less crowding and also, you know, make sure that the staff are permanently employed, not part-time, that they have full-time benefits and sick days so that the number of people coming in and out of these homes is also down. And only by doing that can we reduce the risks of more severe outbreaks in the future, not just COVID, but the flu happens every year and odds are we're going to get another pandemic in ten or fifteen years. So you know, we need to we need to rethink the, the facilities and turn them from institutional models, uh, where, you know, to be cynical, we store older people to smaller size living spaces that are much more home like not only better for preventing infections, but actually people do better there in terms of mental health and physical health as well. So it's, it's a win-win. And uh, I think governments need to stop building massive buildings and start thinking about homes being homes instead.
1: Professor, I mean that makes absolute sense and of course you look at the facility but now if we are going to stop this from ever happening again we look at our current facilities is it possible to retrofit did you look at that sort of thing and the costs and and you know the the roadblocks really that would be involved
4: I think there's a lot of roadblocks and I mean roadblocks are, are red tape and you know governments are made to get rid of red tape so the older buildings uh, in terms of retrofitting them, uh, some are already happening in some places in Ontario where I where I work. Is they're taking large rooms, so rooms where there's higher than one-person occupancy, two or three or four-person rooms, and they're converting them into single-person rooms with single washrooms, so people can start doing that right away. Uh, the other thing is to change the ventilation systems and upgrade them to high-efficiency systems, so that we don't recirculate nasty air and we we clean out, we filter out the any viruses that might be circulating, and internally you know start dividing up the larger units into smaller ones and and yes, it'll cost money, but uh I think frankly we've been underfunding long term care for decades, yeah. and if people really you know everyone's talking about protecting seniors, if we really mean it yeah, yeah it will cost it will cost, but yeah. you know. You get what you pay for. Absolutely.
0: Thank you uh, so much for your time this morning, Professor Heckman.
4: You're most welcome.
0: That is George Heckman, professor in Waterloo School of Public Health and Health Systems, as well as a Schlegel Research Chair. 6.42, mornings with Sue and Andy. A Calgary-based personal development and entrepreneur coach is taking his knowledge and sharing it with other professional coaches. It's a new certification program that will help foster growth of the industry and offer a standard among those working in it. With details, we're joined by the creator of the program, Douglas Vermeeren. Good morning to you, Doug. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Good to, be, uh, good to have you. Well, let's talk about this uh, certification. Is, is it uh, sort of the first of its kind?
5: Well, there are a couple of certification programs that are out there for traditional business coaches. Mm-hmm. But the reality is is that the, the world has changed. The way that we do business isn't really traditional anymore. So this is the first for entrepreneurs, which is really exciting.
1: So you're training entrepreneurs to be coaches for entre- or would-be entrepreneurs?
5: Well, yes, and and I guess one one thing that's kind of interesting about this is obviously with the pandemic this last year, uh, statistics have kind of demonstrated that we've had more people become entrepreneurs now than ever in the history of the world. So the the timing is really good, but it's not just me training them. A lot of people who aren't familiar with my history, they may not know that I actually went out and I, I did research with more than 500 of the world's top business leaders and entrepreneurs. You know, founders of companies like FedEx, Nike, Ugg Boots, Ted Baker, and many of the others. So I've actually got them as part of our, our faculty. And these are guys that have literally started from an idea and taken it to a multi-billion dollar enterprise internationally.
0: So a uh, breakdown for us, you know, obviously we've all been through some sort of a schooling. Um, how does this work? Because you would think that a leader, uh, you know, is kind of born. Uh, but you're here to say that you can, you can actually make leaders and make that impact.
5: Well, I I think one of the the big things that people uh, forget to remember about entrepreneurship is that there's actually a pattern and there's also a sequence that people need to follow in order to create a, a successful startup. And so what we do is we help them really through that idea of idea all the way to completion, to launching into the marketplace, and then obviously providing support even beyond that. And so with this idea of certification, we really feel it's important because if you're trusting someone to help you with your business or your startup, you can't really roll the dice on that one. You need to make mm-hmm. sure that you've got correct information and the correct support. So the, the whole certification program actually really is designed around this idea of qualifying people and making sure that they also can help others implement the strategies that are required.
1: Love this idea, Doug, because you're right, there are so many people who have lost their jobs through the pandemic or have just realized that they need something different, they need to change, maybe they need to up their game a little bit, and let's face it, Alberta is really becoming sort of an entrepreneur capital of Canada, so to have this program with some of the best businesses Mm. out there teach you how to be a great entrepreneur, it's brilliant.
5: Well it, it it's just amazing cuz I have to admit I'm learning so much too as I have a chance to chat with a the founder of Ugg Boots or the founder of Nike or Reebok. We've got these guys involved, and they've just got a really interesting perspective. So not only on how do you make a business work day-to-day, but even right out of the gate, how do you raise funds for a business, you know, that you, you've you got a, an idea for? Is the idea viable in the marketplace? How do you deal with competitors, especially on a global scale? And so, I mean, there's just so many questions that uh, I think if you're just starting in business because you've lost your job, you've really, you know, kind of got to solve this riddle of where do I start? But also, how do I really make this my new thing? How do I make it so that I can literally, you know, replace my income? And so I think that that kind of support, it's just, it's, it's incredible to have access to that.
0: Doug, I would think that, you know, it has to be somewhat organic because every idea, every entrepreneur, every business is, is, can be vastly different. There's not a template, is there?
5: Well, there is and there isn't. The reality is, is let's be frank, not every idea that comes out of you know someone's a uh, brain is is going to create a new business, mm-hmm. right? It's just it's just not always going to be strong. But there are ways that we can kind of predict what will work in the marketplace. And then I believe that even an idea, if it doesn't have a good team surrounding it, really has a hard time like surviving. The, the reality is, as business, just like wealth, is always built by a team. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, that I think is, is the big challenge, is who do you put on your team? And then also, what's the sequence of how do you bring this out? And then one of the other things that I think is maybe a bit of a how should say, incorrect idea in the marketplace right now. You always hear about people right now saying, listen, if you hustle, if you grind, if you work hard, if you wake up early, join the 5 a.m. club and stay up late, well, that's a pretty good recipe for success. The reality is is just being busy is not a guarantee of production either. And so what do you do (laughs) Like with this time, right? And, And I think that it's kind of an interesting thing that a lot of these gurus telling you to hustle. They really don't tell you what you should do or the sequence of what you should do it. So to me, that tells me that they don't really have the answers. And so by bringing these top faculty in from these top businesses, we've solved that riddle. So it's not just a matter of getting busy or taking massive action. It's what the what's the deliberate actions that you need to take that are actually going to get the results.
1: Well, I love on your website that you can jump right in and register, or you can schedule an interview with your team to maybe find out if this is right for you. So we'll direct people to certified entrepreneur certified. Sorry, I'm trying to read it. dot com. Thanks, Doug, for joining us. Appreciate your time.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Have a great day. That is Douglas Ramirez, who's creator of the Certified Entrepreneur Coach Program. Sounds brilliant.